Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to confess any known sins to God the Father using the principles of 1 John 1, 9, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers. We thank you for the fact that we have freedom in this nation to gather together to study your word. We thank you that we have a president who has such clear thinking that he seems to understand what needs to be done, what uh, the absolutes are in relationship to uh, foreign policy, in relationship to uh, the principle of freedom through military victory. And we pray that he might be able to stay the course, despite the fact that many compromises need to be made on the path to politics. We thank you that we have a leader who has a clear vision of what needs to be done. Father, we pray that you would continue to be with those in this congregation who are overseas, those who are in the military, those who may be in harm's way. We pray that you would watch over them and take care of them. And those who are uh, tapers in the extended uh, family of the Church, we pray that you would watch over them. We pray that you would uh, comfort their families and strengthen them during this time of separation. Father, we continue to pray for us as a body of believers that we might not uh, uh, give up, that we might not grow weary, that we may stay the course and stand fast and continue to pursue the high ground, learning your word, uh, taking it in, assimilating it into our thinking, that we might think and therefore live the Christian way of life and glorify you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. One announcement I forgot. Those who are involved in the uh, trip to Ukraine to go over to work with Jim Myers this summer need to meet with me after church today. We have to get some final things, paperwork done, and you know what that's all about. So do not forget that. We need to, uh, it's mandatory that we do this today. And also, as a further reminder, there's been a number of people who have uh, given a uh, offering specifically for that trip, and we did offer uh, open up the grace box for those who would like to help uh, help with the finances of that particular trip, which includes financing the the camp that they're going to be running over there in Ukraine. It's not just you know taking care of the costs directly related to the individuals, but also helping to defray the costs of running the camp over there. They should have uh, quite a time over there. Uh, 
Okay, open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 11, 8. Now, this is a passage, as I pointed out last time, that has a certain amount of problems with it and trying to understand it. Some people just sort of gloss over the whole passage and think that, well, this was a cultural issue at that time and really doesn't have any direct application to our uh, present situation. Others want to take it to the other extreme in almost a hyper-literal sense and take the idea of a covering to be literal, that women should wear a veil or hat or some sort of physical covering over their head in order to be able to uh, uh, worship. Along with that, we have to answer the question which I glossed over last time about the women praying or prophesying in the church in relationship to uh, the statement of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, 34 to 36, that women are to keep silent in the church. And we'll get to that at the end of the hour this morning. There's a lot to cover this morning, and so we don't need to waste a whole lot of time. As we got started last time, I raised some questions about this passage. The first I've already alluded to, and that is whether this is a physical head covering or if it is simply the hair. And if it's the hair, what is he saying about hair? Second, what the question of defining prayer and prophecy, and let me just say at the beginning that prophecy is a temporary gift and is no longer in effect for today, so this does not apply. Furthermore, you will often hear pastors teach that prophecy is not only foretelling, that is, telling the future, but it is also forthtelling, that is, proclaiming the truth, and so that means that today the foretelling aspect is no longer in effect, but the forthtelling or preaching aspect is, and they want to equate prophecy to preaching, and that is just about the worst form of exegesis and biblical study you can ever uh, come up with. Prophecy is not preaching. And so this does not in any way give an authorization for women to preach as long as they seem to have a hat on their head. Prophecy was a spiritual gift given uh, to specific individuals in the ch- early church for the purpose of revealing uh, truth related to church age dynamics that uh, was necessary because the canon had not been completed as of yet. In the Old Testament, it wasn't a spiritual gift, but it was an ability that was given and an office that was given to certain individuals in the Old Testament, and it was limited to that period. So this is not talking about Old Testament gift of prophecy. It was talking about the New Testament gift, which died out in 90 A.D. The nature of the controversy seems to be that there were three groups in the congregation in Corinth who were trying to apply the general principles that Paul had taught. He had Apparently there was some confusion. That's why he doesn't uh, castigate them too much in this passage. In fact, in verse 2, he praises them for trying to apply the principles. They've just gotten out of line in the process. So he is somewhat gentle in contrast to what he is going to say down in verse 17 that instead of praising them, he is going to... Uh, Uh, confront them and correct them. There seems to be three groups of people who were trying to apply the principle. The first group we saw last time were women who who now thought that, well, we're all one in Christ. There's no distinction between male and female. Therefore, because there is, is no difference, we don't have to abide by certain cultural standards 
for distinctions between men and women. So rather than wearing uh, their hair, as we'll see, in a distinctive style that was clearly a feminine style, they let their hair down. And this was uh, social, actually was socially unacceptable. Um, there was a second group that uh, wore their, continued to wear their hair up, as was the cultural norm of that day. And then there was a third group who took it to sort of an extended position, and they wore a literal shawl over their head, which they would have picked up from culture. And last time we looked at the cultural background in Roman culture, in Greek culture, as well as Jewish culture. The basic question here is, should a woman pray and prophesy uncovered? And the Greek word was akataluptas. And the contrast was with a man, that if a man prayed or prophesied with his head uh, covered, even though the word is not actually there in the original, the implication is that if a man prayed or prophesied with his hair covered, that is, with something coming down from his head, it would dishonor his authority. So the issue that we'll see today that runs through this whole passage is how the different sexes demonstrate through their dress styles and their hairstyles their authority orientation. And this is the bottom line issue in this passage is a demonstration of authority orientation in terms of individual roles as God has created them. So Paul recognizes that they're trying to apply the principle. They're just a little confused, so he has to come back and straighten them out. And without addressing each particular group, he gives them the principle again. So, And he does this in such a way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that these principles can be applied across the board culturally throughout the centuries of the church age. We saw that the issue really wasn't literal veils, that there was a, uh, a difference among the various customs, among Romans, among the Greeks, and among the Jews, that in the ancient world, uh, Oriental women, that is those from uh, Turkey, those in Syria, Palestine, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, uh, Persia, they wore veils in public, but Greek women did not wear veils in public. Furthermore, we saw that among uh, Roman customs, Roman men customarily weared a toga over their head when they went into a temple to worship, and women did not. When they were mourning the death of someone, Roman men covered their heads, whereas women let their hair down without any covering. In contrast, when the Greeks mourned, uh, instead of the men covering their hair, they just let their hair grow long, and then women would cut their hair Short. There was no veiling in relationship to mourning customs for, for Greeks. Generally, in Greco-Roman society, women had longer hair, but kept it sort of rolled up in some sort of a wrap or a bun, or they encased it in a, in a scarf uh, so that it was not loose and free-flowing. Uh, Jewish men, on the other hand, did wear a, a talith, over their head, a prayer shawl over their head when they prayed. And we saw that in light of all of these various different customs, that Paul must not be appealing to something that was culturally customary, because 
which cultures are using. He's saying something different for every culture. So he could not be talking about a physical head covering. Furthermore, because of his custom of going into Jewish synagogues and because he would go in and worship, he was not creating a controversy when he went in by not wearing a prayer shawl. If he is saying it is dishonorable for a man to have his head covered when he prays, Paul could not have followed the Jewish custom of covering his head with a, with a prayer shawl inside the synagogue. He would have created an issue. And since there's no indication in Acts or anywhere else in the Scripture that this was a problem, the problem was always the offense of the cross, not the offense of, of something Paul wore or didn't wear. So therefore, we could, must conclude that whatever covering and uncovering refers to, it doesn't refer to a literal physical covering. Then we went through some word studies. We looked at this Greek word katakalupto, which means to uh, cover, and the negative form akatakalupto, which means to uncover. And in doing that, we went back to see how those two words were used in the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. We looked at Ezekiel 44:18 to to 20, and there we saw that the concept of covering or katakalupto had to do with trimming the hair on the priest. Priests could not shave their heads bald or grow their hair long, but they were to trim their hair, and the word there was kalupto. Furthermore, in Leviticus 13.45, we saw that the leper was to let his hair go uncovered. That didn't mean that he wasn't to wear a hat, but as a sign that he was a leper, he was to let his hair grow long and almost in a disheveled way so that that was a clear physical sign that he that there was something distinctive about him uh, along with the fact that he would cover his mouth and go through the streets crying leper, leper to warn people away. Then we looked at Numbers 5.18. Numbers 5.18, we saw that in the test uh, for a woman in terms of her, her a woman who had been accused of, ad- of adultery, that if she was accused of adultery, that she was to let her hair down. That is, again, uh, here it's apocalypto, which is the same root form, calypto, and it means to reveal her hair or uncover her hair. So the sign of an adulterous woman or a woman accused of adultery was that she would let her hair go loose in a sort of disheveled or unkempt manner. Now, if she was found guilty under the Mosaic Law, she was to be stoned. But by the time you get into the New Testament era or even the intertestamental era where you have the uh, diaspora where the Jews are dispersed throughout the ancient world in various Gentile communities, they did not have, at least those in the synagogue scattered in the Gentile uh, cultures, the Hellenized Jews, did not have access to capital punishment. They could not do that. So what their, their punishment for an accused adulteress was that she would have to wear her hair down. So hairstyle said something. There was something that was communicated just by the way a woman wore her hair. And this is true in our day as well. It is less so than it was perhaps 50 or 75 years ago. But uh, if, if you doubt me, ladies, just ask your husband if they can walk down the street and spot a hooker. You know, there are just ways in which a prostitute will carry herself and dress in, a, in certain uh, enticing manners that make it pretty clear. So this is the underlining issue here is uh, understanding this particular passage. So in light of all of that, we concluded last time with a corrected translation that brings out the point that Paul is making, starting in verse 4. 
Every man who has long hair in a feminine style on his head. So no cross-dressing men. It dishonors Christ. Uh, Every man who has long hair in a feminine style. And we saw from a couple of quotes I gave last time that that was a problem in the ancient world. Men tended to um, get various hairstyles in a feminized way. and, And because of the preponderance of homosexuality and the acceptance of homosexuality in a Greek culture, this was a real problem with uh, certain men. So Paul says, Every man who has his hair long in a feminine style on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces the head set over him, that is, the authority set over him, which is Christ, according to verse 3. Now, remember this. The praying and prophesying in chapter 11 is not silent prayer in church. This is not talking about sitting out in the pew and praying while the pastor is praying. This is talking about public prayer in the assembly, and it was uh, accepted in the early church that there were times when uh, women would pray out loud in front of the congregation. They would also prophesy. We know that the daughters of Philip were prophetesses, and that gift was still valid at that time, and they were allowed to function in that gift in the congregation in public worship. So what we're talking about here is public worship. We're not talking about uh, private private worship even in a corporate environment. We're talking about standing up in front of the congregation, leading them in prayer, or, or prophecy. So if a man does it with long hair or it's in a feminine style, then he disgraces the authority set over him, which is Christ, verse 5. But every woman who has her head uncovered with her hair down and in the style of an adulteress or in a style that is unacceptable or masculine even, while praying or prophesying disgraces the authority over her, that is, her husband. Her, for she is one and the same, that is, if she does this, she is acting like the accused adulteress whose head is shaved. So Paul goes on to, to draw the conclusion from this, for if a woman doesn't wear her hair in an acceptable feminine manner, she might as well have her head shaved like an adulteress. But if it is embarrassing for a woman to have her head shaved, let her then wear her hair in an acceptable in an acceptable manner. Now, having concluded with this aspect of hairstyles in chapter 11, I want to keep I want to come back to chapter 11, but I want to go over to chapter 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8 for a parallel passage. 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 8. One of the problems with the modern feminist movement is that they want to take one verse. There's only about five or six key verses in the New Testament that deal with these role relationships between men and women. And in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, you have a passage that relates to the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And verse 28 states, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And the modern feminist interpretation of these passages wants to take that verse, blow it way up, and use that as the grid through which all of the other verses are interpreted. That is sloppy hermeneutics. You never take any one verse in Scripture and make it the grid through which you interpret everything else. That's how you end up with false teaching and a distortion 
of Scripture. That verse is not talking about uh, functional relationships between men and women in everyday society. That verse is talking about the fact that in the body of Christ, there are no economic distinctions as there were under the Mosaic Law. There are no distinctions between the sexes as there were under the Mosaic Law. And there are no distinctions in in relationship to uh, Jew or Gentile as there were under the Mosaic Law. Now there is complete equality in the spiritual life and in terms of access to God because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is an equality there in terms of our position in Christ, and that is not in op- that is not in contradiction to a distinction in role. Now, Paul reinforces these role distinctions in 1 Corinthians 11 and 1 Corinthians 16 and second and 1 Timothy chapter 2. So I'm not going to have time to do all the exegesis here. I just want to hit the high points as we go through 1 Timothy 2. Let's start at verse 8. 1 Timothy 2.8, he always addresses men first. And men, I want you to notice this. There's such a tendency to come down on the women and say, well, women are to be submissive, women are to be silent in the church, but Paul never starts with the women. He always starts with the men because leadership begins with the men, and women have a soul that is designed to respond, and most of modern feminism is the result of a complete failure on the part of men in American society to be men. When men quit paying attention to their wives and their families and put the almighty dollar and their career ahead of everything else, then what's a woman to do? And so women react when they are ignored and placed and shunted aside and treated in an illegitimate manner, and therefore you create this this war between the sexes, which, as we've seen, plays out the... <coughs> information on the curse in Genesis 3:16 and following. So Paul starts with men and he says therefore I want the men and he uses the word on air in the Greek here I want the males. He's specifically talking to males here not men and mankind in general. I want the males in every place to pray. It's an emphasis that a priority needs to be placed in corporate worship that the men need to get together and pray. That's one of the reasons that we divide up between men and women on our prayer meeting on Wednesday night, and men who are serious about their spiritual life and role and place in the church need to recognize that there is a priority in the Word of God for males to gather together to pray uh, corporately. And then we have the phrase, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. And this, it doesn't mean, he, Paul isn't talking about the fact that they are, that he's not talking about a form or a manner of praying here in terms of a physical form. In the ancient world, some bowed their heads when they prayed, some raised their heads and looked to the heavens when they prayed. Others would raise their hands. He's not talking about that. The emphasis isn't on raising your hands, it's on raising holy hands. The issue here is on that word holy, and that means confession of sin and being in fellowship, not just lifting your hands, but that it should be done in fellowship. That's the implication here, without, and it's defined in the appositional clause there, the prepositional clause, without wrath and dissension. That is, you've laid aside your sins 
you confess your sins, there is restoration of fellowship, and so there can be genuine fellowship with God, which has a result in fellowship with man. Likewise, Paul then says, I want, after addressing the men and giving them their mandate, he addresses women in terms of their dress. He says, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. So that emphasizes the fact that women were not to come in to wearing things immodest in church. Now, that doesn't mean wearing a turtleneck and an ankle-length dress. And then he says, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments. In the English, it looks like that's four things, but it's only uh, three things. Braided hair and gold is a hendiatus structure in the Greek. Now, hendiatus means that you take two nouns, you join them by a conjunction and, you take these two nouns with one article, and they're viewed as going together. And this was typical of of especially the uh, higher-end prostitutes in uh, Greek culture, they would braid gold into their hair. They would braid their hair, and they would intertwine gold uh, filigree into their hair so that it was pretty obvious who they were. This was symbolic of that. So Paul is saying, once again, don't come to church dressed like a prostitute. You're not coming to church to entice some man sitting across the other side of church uh, with your physical virtues. And then he says, uh, go, and then when he says pearls are costly garments, the emphasis is not on uh, what you have and displaying your wealth in uh, church. This is not to be a fashion show. And uh, I have been in churches in some areas of this country where Sunday morning is, and I don't mean dressing well. I mean you go into there are some affluent churches I have been in where. It was indeed a fashion show to show off just how expensive a fashion you could have. Now, women should dress well in church. This is church. You shouldn't come to church dressed like you're going to a soccer game. You should come to church dressed like you would if you were going to have an audience with the president because you're going to have an audience with God. And we've got an informal culture that thinks that you can just dress any old way when you go any old where. And it is a sign of a deterioration in a culture when you dress that way. Arnold Toynbee, who is a very famous uh, historian, pointed this out years ago, that when a society, he he wrote a massive volume on on the history of the world, and he studied every culture and the history of every civilization, and he said every civilization on the ascent, the lower classes imitate the upper classes in their dress. And you could see this, for example, a 100 years ago in Victorian England. You see this if you watch any period movies. You will see that even the lower classes, the, the women always wore gloves. They may be tattered, they may be torn, but they wore gloves and they wore hats because that is how the aristocracy dressed. And I remember when I was a child, my mother wouldn't even think of going shopping at some of the department stores in downtown Houston if she wasn't wearing gloves. And now how do we dress? Now we imitate the dress of the, the impoverished people. We, we let those in the ghetto set the standards for our dress, and the upper classes ape and imitate the uh, dress styles of the lower classes. And that is a sign of a deterioration of a culture. You know, that's not my opinion. That has been noted by numerous historians of of culture over the years. So if you want to participate in the 
uh, decimation of American society continue with the informality code that we've adopted. And that is, uh, that is a clear sign that, that the society is falling apart from the inside out. So Paul addresses this. It's not a matter of fashion, but people should dress well. You're going into the presence of God to worship God. Verse 10, but rather, he says, instead of emphasizing your physical uh, attributes, rather than emphasizing your dress and your fashion sense, by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness, that is, to spiritual maturity. The point that he's making in those two verses is that character is the issue, spiritual maturity is the issue, not how you dress, not your style, style of clothes, and not your sense of style and fashion. And then in verse 11, he says, Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. So in the assembly, the women were to remain silent. They were not to talk out loud. And see, this was in contrast to what happened in pagan temple worship. For example, in the worship of Dionysius, you had a group of priestesses known as Maenads, and they pretty much ran everything when they would go to their groves up in the hills. They would dance around, and they would get everybody worked up into some sort of emotional state where the gods would speak to them, and the whole thing would end up with an orgy. But it was... Through, a, through through priestesses that this was activated, and women had a uh, a very obvious role in pagan worship, and so Paul is contrasting that. And in the church, women are to quietly receive instruction. They are to not interrupt. They are not to talk. They are not to uh, lead. They are to receive instruction in a manner of submission. And then in verse 12, which is the controversial verse, he says, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Now, it's very interesting, the controversy that this verse has developed and the ways in which many people have tried to distort its meaning in the original language. In fact, Paul sets this up in a construction in the Greek that is a little awkward in order to make sure he makes his point. He starts off with the, with the infinitive uh, purpose to teach, I do not allow, neither to exercise authority over a man. He sets them up so that it is clear that he is emphasizing both activities. One of the things that incensed me greatly when I was a student at Dallas Seminary was that they invited a woman to come and address the student body in chapel. Now, at that time, there were very few women at Dallas Seminary. Uh, they had not opened either the uh, THM program or the doctoral programs to women. It was a, uh, Those were reserved for men because they still were operating under the purpose statement that Lewis Ferry Schaefer founded the seminary on, and that was that the purpose of the seminary was to train pastors for the pulpit ministry. It, they changed it in the early 80s to training Christian leaders, and they changed the purpose of the seminary in order to be able to open the doors uh, to women. They were under government pressure because they were receiving government money from, uh, I mean, men who were coming out of, I mean, veterans who were coming out of the Army couldn't use uh, federal, federal money or federal grants to pay their tuition. And so because of government pressure, they caved in. School's been going downhill ever since. Compromise always works itself out in horrible ways. 
Anyway, they invited Elizabeth Elliot, who has, is quite well known in evangelical circles because her husband Jim Elliot was martyred in a horrible way down in Ecuador in the late 50s. He was a missionary down there, and he and five, four others, I believe, uh, made a beachhead in an area where uh, a Stone Age tribe existed. No one had ever contacted them with the gospel, and one night they were massacred. And she wrote a book about it, so she had, and she's written several others since, and has gained quite a position of influence over women. And in many ways, she has many wonderful things to say, and she is pretty, you know, is fairly conservative. But she had the gall to stand up in the pulpit at the Dallas Seminary Chapel and to quote this verse as, "I do not allow a woman to teach and have authority over a man." doesn't say that. It says teach or have authority. And she said she could teach because she was under the authority of all these faculty members that were up on the pulpit. I remember Tommy Ice and I were sitting next to each other, and we just about lost our lunch that day or our breakfast because chapel was always early. It was appalling that a woman would get in the pulpit of Dallas Seminary, misquote the scripture to justify her rebellious activity. Paul makes it clear, to teach, I do not allow or exercise authority over a man. Both are prohibited. This is why women cannot serve on deacon boards. This is why uh, women should not be in any position in a church where they have authority over a man or be in a position uh, to teach over a man. Instead, they are to re- remain silent in the church. Now, one of the <coughs> there are many interesting uh, syntactical and lexical points I could uh, make as we go through this passage. Uh, we don't have time to do a detailed exegesis, as I pointed out. But one of the things that is has been suggested as a way of getting around the clear teaching of this passage is that what Paul is really saying is, I don't allow women to teach in a domineering way. In fact, last October, one night, I was <clears throat> unable to sleep, and I woke up about 1 or 2 in the morning, and I was channel surfing. And I went through the public access channel, and there was a woman who was very well educated, obviously, and the pastor of some uh, liberal, rebellious, apostate church down in Groton or New London. Obviously, she had a degree from Yale or some other liberal school that's forgotten the value of the Scripture. And she uh, she went through the most tortured exegesis of this passage. And she was even using a PowerPoint presentation. She was putting Greek up on the board, and she was, she was going through all of this grammatical analysis. And if you didn't know the original languages, you would be completely floored by her presentation. It was a, as a presentation in terms of her form in terms of her ability to communicate, in terms of her structure, she did an excellent job. However, her, her, the way she butchered the original Greek was blasphemous. And her argument was that this little word or that is here, teach or, teach or exercise authority, this word right here, that that word teach or authority really shouldn't be translated as, as an or, that this should be understood as, um, as teaching in a dominating or domineering way. That it, she, she was handling it that way, and that is the view that most feminists try to 
try to use, and that is completely false. In fact, the context, uh, what we've done is you can go through the Scripture and see how this word ude is the joining conjunction here, how ude joins verbs. And you can see that, that ude is used to join two words that are viewed negatively by the writer, and it is also used to view, to, to connect two words that are both viewed positively. In other words, either both words are used negatively or both words are used positively. But it is never in such a way that one is viewed positive and one is viewed in a negative manner. There are many examples of that in, throughout uh, the New Testament. However, in 1 Timothy, the activities of both teaching and having authority are viewed as positive activities. See, their interpretation is that what Paul is saying is that teaching here and exercising authority are being both viewed negatively, teaching in a domineering manner. So Paul is looking at this as a negative exercise. But never does Paul look at teaching or exercising authority as as negative. He looks at them as positive activities. So it is clear that this is fits the pattern of Uded joining two uh, positive activities. The thing is that women are forbidden to participate in these two positive activities. Now, the other approach that is used to try to explain this away is that this was simply a problem in Ephesus that Timothy was facing, and this doesn't have universal application. Well, Paul doesn't appear. That would be true. You have to learn how to think. That would be true if Paul's argument had to do with culture. He never mentions a specific problem in the church in Ephesus. Furthermore, he never appeals to Greek culture, Greek ways in which the women were were, were dealt with in society. And as a matter of fact, uh, women were really, truly second-class citizens in Greek culture. They were just barely a step above the slaves. And Paul never treats women in that manner. Whenever he deals with these issues, as we'll see in 1 Corinthians 11 when we get back there, he always goes to creation to substantiate his point. The order of creation, he never goes to what is practice. He never appeals to Jewish history or tradition. He doesn't appeal to Greek history or tradition. And he doesn't appeal to Roman history or tradition. He doesn't ever say, we do it this way because that's the way that we customarily do things. He always says, we do it this way because of what happened in the garden and because of the order in which God created the man and the woman. So that's his explanation in verse 13. It starts with the word for, which is the Greek word gar, which indicates an explanation. His reasoning for, for prohibiting women from both teaching and exercising authority over a male is that Adam was first created and then Eve. See, that's true for everybody. That's not culturally nuanced. That is true for everybody. God had an order. He created Adam first, and secondarily, he created Eve. This refers to their functional differences. And we're going to get into two words that you have to master to just understand what's going on here, and that is the first of these is functional or economic distinctions, that there are functional differences between men and women. And a couple of weeks ago, I went through an extended list of differences between men and women in numerous categories. So Adam was created first, and then Eve, he says in verse 14, it was not Adam who was deceived. Now he goes to the fall. He says it wasn't the man who was deceived, 
The implication is the man's fault was that he went into it with his eyes open. But the woman, being quite deceived, fell into transgression. So because of the woman's culpability at the fall, which indicates something about her, her nature. Remember I taught when we went through Genesis 1, to 28, that God made man in his image. Male and female, he made them in the image of God. And the male and female there isn't restricted to simply physiological differences. It's talking about the whole aspect of maleness and femaleness, that there is a distinction. Both are in the image of God, but men are created to lead and to initiate. Women are created to respond and to be the assistant. That has to do with why the woman was created the way she was, taken from the side of the man, and she was said to be a helper or aider to the man. She was to be his assistant. And so she was responsive, and she was to respond to the man, and instead of responding to the man, she responds to Satan. And so because she rebels against the authority that God set over her in terms of the man, and because she responds to the wrong person, there is this further uh, implication and restriction on women being able to teach the Word. See, teaching is an initiatory activity. It is an activity of authority that belongs to the, the role of the man. When a woman is teaching or having authority over men in handling the Scripture, she's functioning like a man. And the men, in turn, become feminized. And one of the problems that we have in American uh, churches is that the churches have become feminized. And most men do not think it is a... Uh, a masculine thing to be involved in church and in Bible study and in the spiritual aspects of life. I first was brought home to me many years ago when I was pastoring in my first church, and we it was a terrible situation there because they did not have a, a strong doctrinal background, and it was a church that was loaded with women. I would say 70% women, 70 to maybe 80%, not a lot of men, and A lot of these women were married, and their husbands just wouldn't come to church. And there was one woman who came, and she had her. She told me the story of her trying to bring her six-year-old son to church. And she says, "Time to go to church." And she says, "Daddy doesn't go to church. Men don't go to church. Church is for women." And that is a, whether you realize it or not, that is the cultural norm, and it is different in a lot of doctrinal churches because there is an emphasis on male leadership. Once churches cross that line and start putting women into the role of male leadership, whether whatever it might be, and men lose that exclusive domain of authority, what you will always see happen is a domino effect. And I've had pastors come to me and they say, Pastor, I have so I have such a difficult time getting the men in my community to church. They don't want to be involved. I said, well, how many women do you have in leadership positions? Well, I have two or three because I just don't have any men. I said, well, you have to have the guts and the leadership 
to stop doing those activities. If a man won't take charge and, and lead, don't do it. Because as soon as you start putting women in those leadership positions, the men are going to abdicate their positions and they're going to leave the church. And the only way you're going to ever reverse this trend is to keep the women completely out of leadership, no matter what it is, no matter how much it may seem to cripple the ministries that you have in the church, uh, if you want to reverse this trend, you have to get the women out of every leadership position. And the trouble is they've just built these these complex church structures where they, 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 they put themselves in a box in many cases where they just can't do that. But if you don't do it, you will never attract men to a congregation and you will never have a significant ministry to, to men and developing Christian men as you would like. So that is just the reality of the situation. Men do not like to get involved and, and be under the authority of women, and so they would rather stay home. And then the last verse, which is always a difficult passage, women shall be preserved. Actually, the word there is sozo, the word for salvation, although it's not translated salvation. Remember, the main idea of sozo is to deliver, to heal, to save, and you always have to ask, deliver from what? And Paul says, but women shall be delivered through the bearing of children if they continue, and the they there is problematical, if they the children or if they the, the uh, woman. And I think it is if they, the woman, uh, continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. And there he's talking about the fact that it is the unique role of the woman to be involved in bearing children and to raising those children to the glory of God. That is a function of the Christian family is to raise children to the glory of God. The psalmist said that, that blessed is the man who has many, many children because they uh, they go forth like arrows into battle. And it is through your children that you as a believer influence the world. And there in the scriptures, throughout the scripture, there is a positive emphasis on having many children and raising them up to the glory of God. And this is, uh, this is to be countered. This is a counter to all of the uh, human viewpoint thinking out there that you shouldn't have too many children and population explosion and, and the self-absorption of our society where the, the mother and the dad are so involved in their careers and their own personal agendas that they really don't want to be saddled with the responsibility of too many children. They have lost sight of the spiritual dimension of child raising. And so this is just relating to the fact that part of the the role of the woman is in the bearing of children. And if the women continue in doctrine and love and sanctity, that is if they continue to grow to spiritual maturity, then they will be fulfilling the role that God has designed for them. Now let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We wrapped up last time in verse 7, For a man ought not to have his head covered, that is, he shouldn't be letting his hair down or, or wearing his head in a feminine, feminized manner. Why? Since he is the image and glory of God. Therefore, a man should not wear his head covered, for is in the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, I know that some of you are very sharp, and you've immediately recognized the fact that, that wait a minute, 
1 Corinthians 1, 26-28 states that both the male and the female are created in the image and likeness of God. And Paul seems to be saying something different here. No, he's not, and this is why we have to introduce another big vocabulary word for everybody, and that is the word ontological. Now, normally, some of you have heard this word uh, in relationship to one of the arguments for the existence of God, the ontological argument for the existence of God. And this is a Greek word, ontos, which has to do with being or even essence, and logos, or the study of something, the study or science of of a particular subject. So ontology is the study of being. Another, Another word that is used that is a synonym for ontology is metaphysics. Meta is that which goes beyond. Physics is that which is the physical world. So metaphysics has to do with that which appeals, which is in relationship to the immaterial realities that are out there. So in philosophy, that branch of philosophy called metaphysics has to do with the arguments for the existence of God. And an ontological argument was an argument that was developed based on the character of God is perfect and was formulated by uh, originally by uh, Anselm that then which nothing greater can be conceived must exist because if something greater existed, then it would not be God. So it's based on the basic idea that if God contains perfection and infinity in his attributes, then that which exists is more perfect than that which does not exist. Therefore, since God is perfect, he must exist. It's a rather difficult, convoluted argument, and I don't have time to deal with it. I wrote a master's thesis on it for philosophy, but we won't go into that now. But ontology is not just related to that kind of an argument. It has to do, when when we're talking about it in this subject, is basic essence of something. For example, there's an ontological unity in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit share the same essence or being. They are identical in being and equal in being. So that the Father isn't greater than the Son, the Son isn't greater than the Spirit. They have the same ontology. They are ontologically equal, but they are functionally different. That's what Paul's getting at back in 1 Corinthians 11.3. There is an authority structure in the Godhead. They are ontologically equal and functionally different. And this is what we have. This is what we have in our study starting in verse 8 is that in, in Genesis, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, men and women are ontologically equal. They are both in the image and likeness of God. However, in Genesis 2, where you have the creation where the woman is created as the assistant to the man and she is taken from his side you see the breakdown of how they were created and in that chapter they are functionally different now if paul had used the phrase image and likeness in uh first uh, first corinthians 11:7 then he would be 
going to Genesis 1, 26 to 28, but notice he doesn't say that. He says, man is the image and glory of God. See, in man's, in, in your, the imageness aspect, as we've studied, that is to represent God to something. There is something authoritative in the idea of, of being an image bearer. You are over something. So, under God, He is an image, He's the image of God to the creation, and as He carries out that role, He glorifies God. The woman, though, doesn't function toward the man as the image of God. She functions to the rest of creation as the image of God, and in doing that, glorifies her husband who she's to help as the assistant, and she glorifies God. So by using the terminology image and glory, we see that Paul is not talking about the ontological equality, but the functional distinction. Uh, Genesis 1, again in review, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, both are to exercise dominion over creation, but they do it in different ways. The man is the leader, the woman is the one who assists him, as we see from Genesis chapter 2. So, in verse 7, Paul says, A man, a man is not to, ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God. He has a role as a leader to execute his image responsibilities. But the woman, on the other hand, is the glory of the man. That's the one she is to glorify through her role as an assistant. Then he explains this even more. He says, look, a man doesn't originate from woman, but woman from the man. He's talking about the original creation, that that man didn't come from the woman. The woman wasn't created first. Now, evolution says that the woman was the first one, but the Bible says the man was created first, and the, he says the man doesn't originate from the woman, but the woman from the man. In other words, we have to go to the created order. He's dealing with Genesis 2 function, not Genesis 1 ontological equality. Furthermore, in verse 9, For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman was created for the man's sake. Now, ladies, I don't care how tough this is for you. The reality is that the woman was created to be a helper or assistant to the man. That's the role. If you're in a marriage and your husband is successful and you're successful and your career calls for you to go somewhere, you have to decide if this is what's best for him. Because that's the issue. The issue is not what you want to do, but what God calls him to do in terms of his function. And so there has to be that subordination. It's his, he sets the agenda, uh, the male sets the agenda, not the woman. Man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, because of this created order, notice he didn't go to Greek culture, he didn't go to Roman culture, he didn't go to Jewish culture, he went to the order of creation before the fall. In perfect environment, there was a role structure. There was an authority structure when there was no sin on the earth. Adam was the head of the home, and the responsibility of Isha was to assist him in carrying out his God-given responsibilities. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol 
of authority on her head because of the angel. See, this just isn't a functional issue of marriage and the family. It is an angelic conflict issue. Why? Because the ultimate issue in the angelic conflict is authority. Satan rejected the authority of God, and he rebelled against God. Then when, he, when man was created, he enticed the woman to rebel against her husband. Ladies, if you want to turn back the effects of the fall and to regain a testimony in the angelic conflict, you do it by demonstrating that, unlike Eve, you're going to be authority-oriented to your husband. And this has a testimony to the angels. Furthermore, it's training ground. If you don't develop authority orientation today in relationship to your husband, then remember Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6 that we're all going to judge the angels when we get to heaven. So how are you going to learn to judge the angels if you don't learn authority orientation in basic training while you're here on earth in phase two? So part of the job of the woman, because of the problem, remember in Genesis 3.16, that she's going to desire to usurp the authority of her man, in terms of her sanctification and spiritual growth, she has to deal with that trend and through application of doctrine learn to be authority-oriented to her husband. And this is training and preparing you so that in the eternal state, when we're judging angels, You've got a frame of reference for doing it, and you're qualified to do it. Otherwise, there's a loss of reward and a loss of position and responsibility because you haven't properly trained and prepared yourself for that role. Then Paul goes on in verse 11, and he goes back, and now he comes and he reminds them of the ontological unity of the man and the woman. See, he's talked about function, but he says, look, this doesn't give the man the right to be some kind of uh, tyrant in the home. Because just because God gave you a different role doesn't mean you're better than your wife. She may be smarter. She may handle the money better. She may be wiser. You may be a real jerk. You may have many more problems than she does, but you're still the authority and she's not. That's when it really becomes a test. There's an equality here, he says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. Now, what he means by in the Lord is not because you're saved. He is talking, however, in the Lord. That is in terms of when you are walking by the Spirit, when you are, uh, as a believer, applying the principles of God's Word, you have to recognize that there is a corporate reality here. The man isn't independent from the woman, and the woman isn't independent from the man. You see, this goes. This is truly contrary to Greek and Roman and Jewish culture. There, you have this 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 uh, division in the home where men were superior, women were inferior, and they would never emphasize this mutual interdependency. But Paul first talks about the fact that there are different roles, and he comes back and says, "But remember, men, you're not independent of your wife. Y'all are one." In Christ now, you are one in marriage now. Uh, Neither is the woman independent of the man. They are mutually dependent. There is a unity in the marriage. But even though there is a unity and equality of person, there's still a distinction in role. Verse 12, For as the woman originates from the man, that is creation, Genesis chapter 2, so also now the man has his birth through the woman. And all things originate from God. So in these 
two verses, Paul reminds them that there is the interdependency and there should be a ba- that should be a basis for mutual respect and honor and love inside the marriage. Now, in verse 13, he comes back to the main point. He's going to wrap things up. He says, judge for yourselves. Now, let's make a decision. You've raised the question, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Now that I've laid out the principles, principle number one was back in verse 3. There is an authority structure even in the Trinity. The head of every man is Christ, the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Therefore, everything in life where there's more than one uh, entity involved has an authority structure. Verse 4, he says that there are certain ideas external identifying characteristics of maleness and femaleness. Men need to dress in a masculine way. Women need to dress in a feminine way. And when you cross-dress, you are perverting the design of God. When men cross-dress or dress in a feminine or unisex manner, then they are dishonoring Christ, who is their authority. When women dress in a masculine way or... uh, as a prostitute, then they dishonor the authority over them, that is, their husband. And then he goes on and explains, starting in verse uh, 7, the created order, and that this goes back to creation. And you are now, he, now he says to them, okay, what should women do in the local assembly? Now, if you go out of here and your question is, well, if you're a woman, you say, should I have my hair long or short? Wear it in a feminine manner but not in a way that would indicate that you're a prostitute. Men, well, then they say men have short hair. Well, it really isn't short hair, it, but it is. It generally, it's shorter than women, but it, it's not a crew cut. It's not shaving your head, as we got an example of that earlier this morning. It is just demonstrating the fact that you have uh, a masculine hairstyle. So Paul asked the question, verse 13, okay, I've given you the principles, now make application. See, in so many areas of the Christian life, you have freedom within various options. God's not going to say, okay, you have to dress just like this. You have to have exactly this kind of hairstyle. But you're going to have general principles, and you just apply those principles and stay within the boundaries. So in verse 14, Paul says, doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor? To him, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by nature? Now, that's something that bothered me for a long time. What exactly does Paul mean when he refers to nature? Some people think that this refers to custom. He's saying, doesn't even the, the custom of our people teach you that a man should, shouldn't have long hair? And that would make it a culturally relative principle. But that's not what nature means. It's the Greek word phusis. Uh, the Greek word phusis looks like this. You've got a phu-sigma-iota-sigma, P-H-U-S-I-S. So some people get the idea that this is culture. No, it's not culture. That's not how it's used in the, in the Greek New Testament. Others get the idea that Mother Nature, see, you read this in your English text, and you say, doesn't nature teach you this? Go, well, wait a minute, I don't see any animals in nature. It's not Mother Nature. It's not talking about the creation. It's ta- actually, it's talking about the created order. That's how phusis is used. And the most clear example is in Romans 1.26, where we read, For this reason God gave them, that is the homosexual 
Sodomites and lesbians gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function, that's phusis, for that which is unnatural. See, phusis there refers to that which God established at the beginning of creation in terms of the sex roles for men and women in terms of uh, heterosexual principles. Uh, Romans 2.14, the word is used again. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively, bad translation, it's phusis, do by nature, that is by the created order, by something that norms and standards were instilled into man from the very very, uh, beginning of creation. So phusis is a word that has to do with, with God's original created order. So Paul says, doesn't nature, that is, doesn't the created order itself teach you that if a man has long hair, that is, dresses or wears his hair in a feminine manner, that it is a dishonor to him, that it is uh, an act of disrespect to God, to himself and to God. Okay, let's summarize. Cultures have hairstyles as well as dress that are distinctively feminine and distinctively masculine. Each Point number two, each sex should dress according to those standards. Although those they've been breaking down in our culture the last 40 or 50 years. That is one way that Satan is using to destroy our culture is to uh, break down these role distinctions and to get people to think that, that sexes are interchangeable. Men can do what women can do, women can do what men can do. Let's not make a big deal about this. Uh, point number three, to cross-dress dishonors the authority established over each from creation. The, when the woman dresses in a masculine way, it dishonors her husband. When the man di- dresses in a feminine way, it dishonors God. Generally, point number four, generally this means that the issue really isn't the length of hair, but hair style. This, though this does mean that men should have relatively short hair, doesn't mean a crew cut, a flat top, a burr, or something, a white sidewall, something of that nature, but a distinctively masculine hairstyle. Now, back to verse 15. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. And we have to correct the translation there. The hair isn't given to her for a covering. The word for covering has to do with a shawl. It is uh, the word uh, parabolion, which we saw last time. Her hair is given to her. Actually, in the Greek, it is uh, the preposition on T, a preposition of substitution. Her hair is given instead of a shawl. That addresses that third group who thought, well, maybe the women ought to wear a veil or a shawl. And he's saying, look, it's the hair, it's the hairstyle. The hair is given uh, to her for a instead of a literal covering. And then he concludes, but if one is inclined to be contentious or argumentative, do you want to argue about this? Remember, there's no other practice uh, we don't have any other practice, that is, we the apostles, nor have the churches of God. This is apostolic ruling. Now, what about women praying and prophesying in church? Let's uh, quickly, quickly, I want to handle that. Prophecy. Prophecy was not an inherently authoritative act. The authority came from God. A prophet was simply a mouthpiece. The prophet is not interpreting and explaining what God is saying. He is simply repeating to the people the 
verbatim message that God gives him. Therefore, the act of prophecy in and of itself was not authoritative. All he was 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 a, a mouthpiece. The best example I have is when I go over to Ukraine and I work with uh, Jim Myers and and his number one interpreter is Margaret, and Margaret does an incredible job and is a fantastic and a rarely gifted translator. And when I teach, I'm teaching through a woman translator. But the authority isn't in Margaret. The authority is in me. Margaret, the only thing Margaret ever does, which is great because she knows where people are, she'll say something, she says, you need to say something about this. I mean, she's been doing this with Jim for so long, you know, she reminds us, you know, under her breath, oh, well, you ought to, you know, answer this question too, or they're going to wonder about that. But she does this great job of just telling the people in their language what I say, but the authority is in me, not in her. Same thing was true of the Old Testament prophet. He is a mouthpiece of God. The the prophet did not have authority as the prophet unless he was in the office of a prophet, and then the authority was in the office. Now, Deborah didn't have that office. She was a prophetess, but she's not holding the office of a prophet. And in the New Testament, when you get to the daughters of Philip, they had the spiritual gift of prophecy, but they did not hold an office of prophet. Therefore, women could pray. pray. Praying is not an authoritative function. Or they could prophesy. Prophecy was not an authoritative function. But teaching is, because in teaching you're explaining to people what the Word of God says and how to apply it in various areas of your life. Teaching is an inherently authoritative uh, practice. This is what the context of 1 Corinthians 14. In first. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, uh, starting back in about verse 29, where Paul says, Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. He's setting the context. What are the rules for prophecy? Only two or three priests. Not like charismatic churches where you have all kinds of people babble on at the same time, uh, thinking that that's honoring God. Paul says, only let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. See, a prophet would make a statement and claim, this is what God says, I'm just telling you what he said. And then the people in the congregation, or the men actually, and the leaders, would evaluate this to determine whether this was consistent with revealed Scripture and if there was a, a, a valid claim here that this was something that God said. And this is why the next two or three verses give general rules about how the, how the gift of prophecy was to be utilized. And it's in this context that Paul says in verse 34, Let the women keep silent in the churches. They, it's not that he's forbidding them to prophesy, but they can't sit with the men and judge and evaluate the prophecy because that is a position of authority. They were to keep silent. You have somebody would prophesy, somebody would, then the, the, the men in the church would evaluate it, but the women were to keep silent. They were not to get in there and say, well, what about this? And how do, he said this, and I heard somebody else say that. How do you make this? They were to keep silent in the church. They weren't permitted to speak but they were to remain in a position of submission, as the law says, and if they desire to learn anything, what? 
Let them ask their husbands at home. That preserves the authority structure. Rather than coming out from under the uh, umbrella of their husband's authority, they were to go home, and if they had problems with something that was done that morning, ask their husband and then let the husband deal with it, because that's, that's his role. And then Paul concludes, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Now, we'll deal with that in more detail when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, but I wanted to bring that in and kind of tie up this whole section that we've been dealing with for uh, several weeks now on uh, women and men in public worship in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word today and to see how clear your revelation is about the roles and responsibilities of each of us, that you have a design in mind for why you created men and why you created women. Father, we thank you above all for your grace in, in giving us uh, your word and in telling us about the basic problem of mankind that we have all sinned and fall short of your glory, but that you sent your Son to die on the cross as our substitute, that we might have salvation as a free gift. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross as a substitute for your sins, every sin. There is no sin too great for the grace of God, no sin unknown by God, and no sin for which Christ did not pay the penalty. The issue, therefore, is your faith alone in Christ alone. If you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins, then you have eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, you can solve that problem. You can determine your eternal destiny by an act of faith. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We ask that you would uh, help us to remember these things and apply them in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.